Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 225. Today's episode is all about how to want sex again. Why so many women experience painful sex and discomfort and loss of libido is because we've gone too long having sex that doesn't work for us. And naturally, the body wants to give up because this is bullshit. We're abusing our body, but we're expecting miracles and and miraculous results. What this does, this continuing to have unpleasant sex for various reasons, it actually puts us out of integrity with ourselves because we know this is depleting us. We know that this is not working. And when we're out of integrity with ourselves, libido or really genuine, thriving, orgasmic libido doesn't have a chance in that. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. You're listening for the first time. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people. Because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I am so excited about a review from Jess Rose Johnson, who says, Melissa, I've been listening to you for over a year now. And after trying upwards of 50 podcasts, yours is the one that keeps me coming back for more. I look forward to every single episode and think you do such a great job choosing the topics and making every single one meaningful and actionable. On days where I'm struggling, your podcast helps me center myself and stay motivated. What sets you apart is your vulnerability and realness, and I love your confidence and ability to share your mind-love journey. I'm active duty military and a new mom, and your podcast has truly made a difference in my mental health. I'm a listener and a fan for life. Keep on doing what you do. It makes a difference. Jess, I swear I read this and I cried. (laughs) This review made a huge difference in not just my day, but just my overall feeling in the work that I do. So you have no idea how much this review, oh, I'm tearing up right now, means to me. So thank you so much, Jess. And now on to the show. Remember the days when you were just like DTF all the time? The new person you're dating starts poking your thigh at like 4 a.m. and you're just like, screw sleep, I'm ready to grind. If you've never watched Jersey Shore and don't know what DTF means, just peep Urban Dictionary for a hot sec. To keep it PC, we'll just say it stands for desire to fool around. (laughs) No, that won't work. It's down to fuck. That's what it means. This podcast is labeled explicit, okay? And honestly, this whole episode is probably a little TMI for the little ones. So let's just save this one for adult time, okay? I also want to say that while this episode is mostly aimed at women, straight men have a lot to gain from understanding all of this about their women. So stick around. 
When my husband and I first started dating, I'd drive up to the mountains from the coast, and as soon as he'd open the door, I'd do that straddle jump, you know, the one that's basically in every Bachelor episode. We'd start making out and immediately head to the bedroom, or the kitchen, or the office, or the windowsill, or really wherever our little naked buns would land. And now I get home and I'm like, hold on, let me put my stuff away. Or maybe I'll make a hot tea first. Can I just decompress? I have to poop. Let's do this later. Or back then we'd be on some gorgeous hike with no one around and we'd give each other that little flirty glance that says, hey, you want to bang it out at lookout point? And now I'm like, I don't want to take my pants off. You crazy? Maybe it's maturity or maybe it's just changing hormones or maybe it's letting a good thing slip away. Which way is healthier for your mind and body or for your relationship? When is a line crossed that leads to disconnect in a relationship versus just a changing of needs? My sexual desire has been a whole journey. Or maybe I should say understanding it and my relationship to it has been a whole journey. I discovered self-pleasure, we shall call it, way too young. Yeah, it was a whole thing. I'd be like grinding on the corner of my school desk in elementary school. I eventually learned that this should not be a public activity, but the beast was already unleashed. In my 20s, I remember thinking, I will never be one of those old married women that doesn't want sex several times per day. I clearly just have a super high sex drive, always have and always will, and history seemed to be on my side with that conclusion. My sexual desire had been rampant since I could remember. But then things started to shift a bit. First, my understanding of my sexual desire changed. I realized how many people I had slept with more for validation than my own pleasure. Hell, I didn't even orgasm with most of my 20s flings, or any of them if I'm being perfectly honest with myself. So what was I gaining from those encounters? Then as I started to know myself and create boundaries and have the confidence to speak up, sex got really good with my husband. But then work got busier, and then I had more goals, and then other things took priority. But whatever, it's just a phase, right? Yeah, we had sex less often, and we both know that at this point, poking my thigh at 4 a.m. is not going to bring us anywhere good. And then we had a baby. What I've learned so far is that phases become habits if I let them. Just like with everything else in my life, when something starts to slip, it's my job to bring intention to it and bring it back into balance. But how do you do that with desire? It's more than just forcing yourself to show up to the activity, right? How do you get yourself to actually want sex again like that 20-year-old version of you did? Or if you're like me, how do you expand on that desire of your younger self so you know the desire is coming from a healthy place rather than just your need to be validated? Well, that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Irene Fair, a certified sex and intimacy coach. She helps couples make love and sex work in long-term relationships and bring sex and passion into sexless ones. So today we're going to dispel myths about why sex dies in long-term monogamous relationships that end up causing heartache and broken dreams. Three key things we will learn are how society not only makes women feel broken sexually, but also kills their libidos, why sex in the beginning stages of a relationship is unique, and the seven stages of female sexual arousal, and which is the most critical. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. 
First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Irene Fair to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what inspired you to become a sex and intimacy coach? Well, it was my own story, my own journey of navigating a sexless marriage that led me to do this work specifically with couples who are also experiencing sexless relationships or sexless marriage. And it was you know, a story of falling in love and starting a relationship like so many couples experience. It was wonderful in the beginning. It was easy. Sex was just flowing. And then as the relationship deepened, as we moved in together, as we got married, sexual desire started to be harder to have, at least for me. And eventually I lost all sexual desire completely, sexual desire for my husband and also then stopped uh, any and all sexual activity. And at the time, there was very little information about this, even at the gynecologist office or via therapists. And I made my own conclusions that I was broken as a woman, that I wasn't sexual enough, that I didn't know how to keep my man happy. And I slid into a pretty deep depression around that uh, for years following the divorce that happened. And so it was this experience that led me to work with a sex coach many years later to, in a way, fix myself, to get back on track. Uh, but then when I started doing this work and started to realize that there was nothing wrong with me, that there's nothing actually broken with me, but there's so much broken around how we talk or don't talk about sex in relationships, all the different myths that are out there about women's libido and what it is like to keep your libido going in a long-term relationship, that I was just so motivated to do this work. Because as soon as I started talking about my own story, literally thousands of women and couples started to say, wow, that's our story too. So as I went through my own journey of discovering myself and getting back into sex, I, like I said, I was just very motivated to do this work and to save so many couples from the kind of heartbreak that I went through, both personally and also on the relationship level. And so 10 years later, here I am. I'm excited to learn from you because I've definitely had ups and downs in my own personal libido. And it's been a difficult waters to navigate, if I'm being totally honest, because like, for example, right now my sex drive seems to be up definitely more than it was last year after I just had a baby. But I remember there was a couple years after I got married that it was down for quite a while. And part of what made it extra confusing for me is as I've grown just through personal development in general and learned about myself, when I looked back at the sexual activity that I participated in when I was younger, especially a teenager in early 20s, 
so much of my, and I'm using air quotes right now, desire Mm -hmm. for sex was more of a desire for validation. And so I had to unravel, like, when was I actually really wanting sex more so than when was I wanting to feel wanted? And so then once I I felt wanted as a married woman, I felt wanted by my husband, then it was like just whole different navigation around sex in general because I'm like, well, you're giving that to me, all the things that I wanted originally in so many ways. And yes, I can get off in sex, but I didn't need that type of validation anymore, if that makes sense. And so then I was having to kind of dig into the well of what I wanted sex for and and connecting with it for more so my own pleasure, which was sadly almost like unique. <laughs> like it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't something I'd really experienced before. Does any of that make sense? Or have you heard stories like that? Oh my, you've hit upon very important points. And in fact, I go over these three types of sex in my work. And one of them is called precisely validation sex, that it's around the need to be validated. And it often happens when the relationship uh, becomes infused with love and connection and feelings for each other. And so we start to have sex that is about validation, but that it, as well as this other type of sex, they die out because it isn't enough. Or that it's if it's driving your sex, then you will fill up with validation and not want it you need to find a different source. So I love your story because it is so much of what I saw in my own relationship and what I see in the couples that I work with all over the world, regardless of where they live in the United States, in Europe, in Australia, in Asia. This is a typical pattern that most people go through and most couples go through, in fact. You mentioned that there are myths that especially make women feel sexually broken. What are some of those myths? Yes, I would love to talk about this. So I'm going to map out these four myths. And they're really myths because so much of our our education comes from watching movies and hearing kind of conquest stories rather than real life stories from uh, from couples and from women. And so um, the first myth is uh, it's about sexual desire and that how it should be spontaneous. But the way we as women see our men experience sexual desire, which is kind of like on demand. So a man sees his partner, he sees her naked, or he is excited by her touch, or he just thinks of her. And he can get aroused, meaning he can get hard, he can have an erection with literally within a couple of seconds. And then he can be ready for sexual intercourse and orgasm during that time. So it's what um, what's called spontaneous sexual desire. It literally spontaneously happens within a, a range of a couple of minutes. And this is how we see sexual desire in general presented in the movies and in the media. And we think that this is how it is and this is how it should be for both men and women. But I want to distinguish this from the way men experience this and from the way women experience this. And this is a very binary picture. So there's a lot of variation. So most men experience this, most women experience that. Uh, but there, again, there's, there's a lot of variation in between. And 
what happens to women is actually a very different process, and it's called uh, responsive sexual desire. So for women, sexual desire follows arousal, and arousal follows an experience that she goes through that starts with connection, that starts with playfulness and attention from her partner, that continues with you know, for, with touch and holding hands and kissing and progressing to more sensitive areas such as the genitals. And this process, this stimulation, mental, emotional, physical, starts to get her body warmed up. It's the body starts to get aroused. She starts to feel wet. She starts to uh, get engorged. And at the end of this journey that most women will say, oh, now I want sex. That desire for sex earlier on may be mental, like she wants to be with her partner. It may be driven by need for validation, but it's not holistic and it's not where the body is ready for it. And so, as you can see, this isn't a linear journey and this isn't something that happens quickly, something that can happen in a matter of minutes. And so many women don't realize this about their bodies, although intuitively we know, but we look at our men and we think that we are broken sexually, that there's something wrong with us for taking this time. The reality is that we have different engines. Men function more like microwaves. You punch in the time and they can go to the highest temperature very quickly. And women are like ovens where we need the time to warm up. We need the, the right conditions. But then we can stay hot for a long period of time as an oven could, right? It takes time for it to cool down. But again, this myth of just looking at men and assuming that that's how sexuality is or sexual desire, this is one of the biggest things that trips women up. It certainly was one of the things that tripped me up in, my, uh, in, in the journey of my sexist marriage that I mentioned. I thought I was broken. I thought me needing to kiss or to make out or to just have time to touch each other meant I wasn't sexual enough and it couldn't have been farther from the truth. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. 
We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. It was a few years into my marriage. Well, actually, it was pretty soon into my marriage. But I had a, a whole kind of breakdown because I was figuring out my own sexuality. And I was sexually assaulted when I was younger, too. And and there was so much of my sexual experience after that because that was my first sexual experience that then I tried to go almost over the top with it. And I think it was to... I I had a hard time saying no. And I think there was a part of me that thought, well, if I don't say no, then I can't be taken advantage of because I'm Mm. agreeing to it. And then, yeah, all of these myths about sexuality definitely played a part, things you'd see in movies or in porn or whatever. And so I had this need to be desired when I was young and to be that woman that I'd see in in the media or in, in movies to be desirable to my partner. And I thought like, well, if I, if I'm too, in a, in a way it was almost if I was too vocal with my needs, then I would seem like a needy partner when I want to, I don't want to seem, I want my partner to feel like he can satisfy me, which led to basically a decade of faking orgasms and yeah. never really receiving orgasm from a partner. And so I finally broke down and was like, I, I don't think I can get off with just penetration alone. I need more. Yeah. And and I was so afraid to share this. And my husband ended up just being like, oh my God, just let me know what you need. And then it was like kind of working together to almost heal this. Mm. But then I went yeah. through a stage of knowing that I needed more touch. But I remember there was a period of time where my sex drive was low. And then I would start to resist touch for a short period of time. I Once I kind of awakened to the fact that I was doing this or became conscious of this, then I then worked on this. But it was like, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well now you're being cute and touchy with me and I'm not ready for sex right now, so I'm going to pull away. And so it was almost a slippery slope of like, then not wanting these other parts of intimacy because I didn't want sex in this moment. When then, if I actually allowed it, then I would be ready for it. But there was so much just like mental anguish around it Mm. that was really hard to navigate, especially while you're still becoming comfortable with, say, a new partner. Yeah. Well, this mental anguish that you're mentioning, it's so common and so, so natural in this area because there's so much more to sex than just kind of the friction part or the orgasm part. It's the identity part, like who am I and what's my role in sex? Am I just here to please my partner or am I here to receive pleasure? And then understanding what kind of pleasure you need when. Like uh, there are different times in our lives. There are different times in the day when we need different things. And it's about giving ourselves permission 
to change our mind and to be okay with it. And then, of course, communicate to our partners. So all of this is super vulnerable. All of this is fraught with basically vulnerability and these kind of dangers of exposing yourself or maybe making your partner unhappy. And like I said, anguish kind of comes with a territory, anxiety and and fears around this. So all of this is normal and natural. And it sounds like the journey that you went through of really understanding yourself, that was incredibly powerful. Yeah, I, my hyper-awareness is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> it's like, but how, how have you analyzed everything? And I'm like, I don't know, something happens, and then I sit in deep thought about it. <laughs> but So some people might just kind of be like, oh, well, yeah, I didn't want sex for a while, where I'm like, why is this happening? What's everything in my past that may have contributed to this? And so it it was helpful, very helpful for me when I started being more vocal and connecting with people that have gone through similar things, which then I found out almost every single one of my female friends have at least gone through a period of their lives where their sex drive was really down or they're still going through it or they're still kind of trying to figure out how to communicate those things. But I think the understanding of beliefs that we hold as Mm -hmm. a collective are one of the are, are at least one of the biggest parts that helped me to at least know where to start in not necessarily trying to fix it, because as you said, these are myths, but trying to understand myself so that I could find the desire or or connect with my partner. Yeah, and it's really about finding your genuine desire, the way it wants to manifest in this moment. That we another myth, which is not one of the four myths that I talk about, but it's it's another big one, is that sexual desire is static, that you're born with it, and this is how it looks when you're six, and this is exactly how it still looks when you're 16 and when you're 60. And that is incredibly damaging because it again makes people feel like they're broken because what what worked at six does not work when you're 60. And that's because sexual desire is not even a, it's not something that, that spans a, a stage in life, that it's something that can change and does change, especially for women. But for men as well, it changes depending on the stress levels, the mood that they're in, the connection with their partner, whether they just had a fight or whether they just had the most connected, happiest moment of their lives. And of course, there's physiological things that impact libido, such as, did you have a good night's sleep? Are you running on a full cup? Or are you, you know, a superwoman who did everything all day long, pleased everyone, checked off every box, completed every task, and rolls into bed exhausted. You know, completely different person. We're talking about completely different people here. And all of that impacts our libido. And this is, by the way, the second myth, is that we can do it all. We can spend our all of our energy everywhere else and still expect ourselves to be desirous and sexually active and on top of it at the end of the day. And it's really, it's, it's, it's a damaging myth that we put on ourselves and the, an expectation that we put on ourselves that we can run in an empty cup and still deliver amazing results in the bedroom. And that's unreal. And, and it's damaging and damages our health and damages everything in our families. So uh, I know that a lot of 
men, though, have the mindset that, well, one of my basic needs is sex. And so if women, if a woman isn't running on a full cup and they're kind of exhausted and they can't deliver it, where's the line of compromise to like, when should a woman be like, well, I'm going to give this to my husband because I know he needs it even if I don't need it right now versus I need to honor my energy and what I can handle at this point. So here's the thing. Sexual desire in a long-term relationship is not something that you can do or you can apply a spot solution, meaning that here's the situation that you just described, and it's something that you do when it happens. Like your male partner asks for something and you're not in the mood, but you, you give it to him anyways. That the problem with this is that you're always going to be at a deficit and you're always going to be catching up and you're always going to be putting out fires. And that's no way to live that when we talk about sexual desire in a long-term relationship, we need to think of this more broadly and holistically. What kind of infrastructures in your relationship need to exist for you as a woman to not ever have to crawl into bed so exhausted that you don't have energy for the things that you care about? What do you need to have in your life, in your lifestyle that supports you in having energy, in having support, in having, again, an infrastructure. It could be if you have children of babysitters or family coming to help, having support at work, delegating so that you have a break, that you're not so mentally uh, basically incapacitated because work is on your mind. That this is especially necessary for women's desire in a long-term relationship. And we need to think about it holistically. And this is so much of the work that I do with my clients and my practice is that it's not just these spot solutions in, in what they do in sex and in the bedroom, but how do they design a life that supports the things that are most important to them? And we look at very practical things. Like I said, babysitters, schedules, delegating things at work, uh, asking for the kind of job dynamic or situation that you need, whether it be, it be working from home more or doing this and that. And I'm very passionate about this point because we don't talk about this enough. We, we need a, a broader holistic approach. Otherwise, women are always going to be at a deficit, always running behind and catching up and always feeling broken as a result. In the last uh, few months, We've kind of redesigned our schedule because I have a one-year-old. He just turned one uh, in February. And so, I mean, the last year was our first year parenting. It's been a whole new world for us, obviously. And so there was a period of time where I was just staying home. We didn't have any help. We got to a point where we had to decide like, well, what's important to us? And I still have my business. He has his. And so we were able to get a sitter and and man, first of all, that was a lifesaver. But one of yeah. the things that made the biggest impact is I live in a small mountain town and there's not uh, a whole lot of the yoga that I love up here. And so now once a week, I drive an hour down the mountain and I have mm-hmm. like a little day. I go to yoga. I will stop at Trader Joe's. I'll uh, maybe get a massage or a pedicure or one other little thing that kind of lights up my world. And 
Yeah. Honestly, I think it's that that brought my sex drive back was just having a me day and time to focus on myself. And yes, the babysitter as well. She comes a, a few hours, a couple days a week, and that's usually when we get our sex on. <laughs> there was one time where my yeah. husband was like, "Was like, does this mean I'm paying for sex?" And I'm like, "Yes," <laughs> and and I think it's worth it, isn't it? Because <laughs> he knows that like the ten to eleven a.m. that's my sweet spot. It's not first thing in the morning. It's not at night, and so the guilt-free time to myself, and then also the guilt-free time with just my partner has just made a huge difference. Absolutely. I love everything you're saying because it's really, it's, it's time to yourself. It's time for the activities that light you up and fill your cup. And that allows you to bring better quality energy into the relationship, not the exhausted, resentful kind, but energized and, and excited and full of desire. And this is what we need. This is, this is what I consider an essential nutrient for women's libido is, like you said, we need guilt-free time to ourselves and we need guilt-free and pressure-free time to be with each other, to let things unfold naturally between you as a couple rather than, okay, we have half an hour, we're really tired, but let's make this happen. That's not a very sexy kind of energy. <laughs> I know it's like, get the coconut oil. Let's just get this over with. We've got seven minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what are the other two myths that we haven't yet touched on? And now for another episode of lies we've been told about our health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So what are the other two myths that we haven't yet touched on? So the third myth is similar to what I just mentioned about this holistic approach. And the myth itself is I should want to have sex with a man I love just because I'm with him. And so it's this idea that because you love each other, because you've committed to each other in a relationship, that things should just happen, but they don't. There's the circumstances that I talked about and the need for the infrastructure. And there's also the requirement to have dedicated, unstructured time to spend with each other, to not just be parents or business partners or uh, partners in running a house, but to be lovers, that this is so necessary. It's why we fall in love with our partners to begin with is because we share that unstructured time to just be with each other, connect, talk, fall asleep in a nap, and wake up and just be with each other. So we need to plan that time intentionally into our lives if we want sexual desire to flow, especially for women. That this does not just happen because you happen to sleep next to a partner that you love, but you end up spending maybe five fleeting minutes being with them a day. There's just no way that sexual desire can happen out of those mere five minutes. So that's myth number three. And myth number four touches upon a pattern of what happens when women fall prey to these first three myths. So when we believe that our sexual desire should be spontaneous, just like men, we disregard what our bodies need and we just go with sex that the man wants. It could be sex after three minutes of foreplay, before your body is ready, before your body is engorged and aroused and craving sex or orgasm. So we do that because we think we need to, but we override what the body needs and what would make sex extraordinary. With myth number two, I'm a superwoman who can do it all. Well, again, we're exhausted getting into bed and here's a partner with a heart on in bed and we think we need to fulfill his needs. So we say yes to sex that we have no energy for and that we don't want. And again, we rob ourselves of the context that would make sex extraordinary for us. That would be about filling up our cups rather than depleting ourselves more. 
And with a third myth, it's the same thing. I should want to have sex with a man I love just because I love him. We end up saying yes to sex. That does not work or that, that we're not ready for. And again, we rob ourselves of the context that would make sex pleasurable. So myth number four is you can continuously have unpleasant sex, sex that may be even painful, and still expect your body to crave more of it, right? It's ludicrous because we basically are saying that we can go on empty, we can have sex that doesn't work for us, and we should still be sexually active and excited for it. And this is like accepting abuse to our own body and then expecting it to work over time for us. But the truth is, is that why so many women experience painful sex and discomfort and loss of libido is because we've gone too long having sex that doesn't work for us. And naturally the body wants to give up because this is bullshit. Again, we're abusing our body, but but we're expecting miracles and, and miraculous results. And so what this does, this continuing to have unpleasant sex for various reasons, it actually puts us out of integrity with ourselves because we know this is depleting us. We know that this is not working. And when we're out of integrity with ourselves, libido or really genuine, thriving, orgasmic libido doesn't have a chance in that. If we're not honoring ourselves and our bodies, when we're not getting the nutrients that would fill our cups, we put ourselves out of integrity with ourselves. And from there, you have depression, anxiety, overeating, undereating, overexercising, all different ways that we compensate for this because it's not healthy to be out of integrity with ourselves. And this is one of the most fundamental reasons that I see so many women and consequently so many couples struggling with sex and sexless marriages because of this this myth that touches upon all others. And this speaks to how important it is for us women to have sex that works for us. It's important for ourselves and our mental health and physical health. It's important for our relationships. For us, enjoying sex means that the relationship can grow and deeper, deepen and love can flow. And it's important for our families so that we can bring this satisfied, fulfilled, genuinely happy energy into our families and model this for the kids and, and you know, generations and gener- generations into the future. And that it's an imperative for us women to own our desire in sex because really everything hinges on this. Everything. I'll be honest. I assumed that even the healthiest way to have sex was, yeah, probably 40 to 50% of the time would be like my desire as well. And then the other 50% would be like, okay, I'll give you what you need today. (laughs) But it sounds like I should be leaning more towards the first for every single one, which does make sense. (laughs) But I'm wondering, how do we start to fix that? Because a lot of these myths are, are very deeply ingrained. We have our habits of behavior, habits of relationship, where we just kind of go through the motions. And mm-hmm. so I know one of the things you teach about are the seven stages of female sexual arousal. What are those and which ones are the most critical? 
Oh, I can spend hours on that. And that is a, a, a huge lecture in my online program, which is called Feed Your Libido. Um, but I'll do a summary here. And the seven stages are about increasing arousal in the body. And it's the first stage that's actually most important. So even though I, I show this in spirals, I want you to imagine a pyramid and the bottom of the pyramid either standing on the tip and imagining how stable that pyramid would be versus a pyramid that is standing on the wide base. And so the first stage of arousal is very boring and we really dismiss it. We don't talk about it at all. Or again, we dismiss our own experience of it as being anything sexual. And it's the grounding stage. It's the grounding stage when we get into our own body, when we start to relax and we start to feel safe and connected with a partner. And so, so so much, again, rests in that. It's the bottom, the, the, the wide part of the pyramid versus ignoring it, rushing through it, or worse, using alcohol to bypass it. So oftentimes alcohol is seen as something that would relax us and get us kind of like eased in. But the problem is that alcohol often disconnects us from our own body. And we start to miss signals that we don't feel safe or we're actually still tense, but we're forcing the body to relax. And so when we consciously and intentionally take time to notice and ground ourselves, ground ourselves with our partners, take time to notice each other's breath, maybe even name things that are happening in your bodies just to get on the same page and start to drop in and sink in. Ensuring that this stage happens and happens thoroughly is going to create fertile ground for the other stages of arousal and orgasm to happen. And those stages include feeling free to free from thoughts and being very present with what's happening in your own body and with your partner and allowing each, yourself and each other to play, to just you know, reach out and touch if you want to, or jump up, up, or jump down, what, do whatever you want to do, but it's that freedom of it. That's what gets created out of a solid grounding. And then, of course, build on that to the point of what we think of as ecstasy, this place where you are so connected to yourself and your partner that nothing matters. You don't you can't even see the perimeters of the room anymore, or it doesn't matter what you say or do, or there's like the sense that something else is moving you or moving through you, that you're no longer this rational put together person, but that there's like this, this force moving through you, this, this kind of higher power moving through you. So the ability to reach those levels depends on how well and how much you're able to ground that makes so much sense for me because uh, my listeners know a huge part of my story was finding any way possible to disconnect with my body. I had an eating disorder. Mm. I was on too much prescription drugs. I was doing party drugs. I drank a lot. And it was a long process of one by one, basically releasing all of those coping mechanisms and reconnecting yeah. with myself. But one of the hardest parts for me when I was finally being vocal with a partner that I trusted, my husband, 
was I had spent a very long time in different habits around sex. Like I shared earlier about validation and not expressing my needs and not even really being comfortable enough with myself to explore my needs with a partner. I knew how to <laughs> how to meet my own needs, but mm-hmm. I hadn't I felt like my arousal would take too long or I was afraid uh, my very first boyfriend ever hated oral sex on women because he said it was gross and so I still was holding feelings from that, like feeling embarrassed or ashamed. Like, is it going to smell weird? Is he going to like doing this? Is it, is this hurting his jaw when I never considered that men might consider my jaw when I was going down on them? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like for some reason, that's not a concern, but I'm all worried about them. Uh, And so it was hard to get to a place where I could say, I need to be honest about sex right now and I have to admit that I've been dishonest about it for this mm. length of time. And so how do you coach women to move through that or even even if it's not as extreme as my case and not saying mine is even super extreme, I know a lot of people who relate to it, but uh, either getting to the point of being vocal and having to admit that maybe you weren't honest previously or that you've been faking orgasms or this isn't the way they've been air quote pleasuring you haven't mm-hmm. been pleasurable and getting their yeah. getting their partner on board with kind of being on the whole sexual journey with them yeah well this honesty slash dishonesty piece is incredibly important because it goes back to what i said about integrity if you're out of integrity with yourself it's going to show up in your life and it's going to wreak havoc in all the various coping mechanisms. And so, you know, so much of the journey that I take couples through, and of course, part of them are women, um, is starting to really admit to yourself and be honest to yourself at the cost of being dishonest, that it's, it's not getting the touch that you want and feeling depleted and feeling like you have to pretend or, or that you have to perform and feeling like you don't feel seen and the resentment that builds up. And all of that carries a huge cost. So again, it's about being honest about that, admitting to yourself that this is that you're already paying so much by being dishonest with a partner. But then In terms of process, what's really important to understand, too, is that when it comes to honesty, most of us have been burned. Like the experience that you mentioned, or we all have our versions where we were honest with a partner and we were humiliated or rejected. They're usually experiences when we were younger, when we didn't have the means to deal with it. And then we made up stories that it's something about me or my sexuality or um, you know, it's just not safe to be honest out there in the world. And so, so much of the process individually with women and with couples is to rebuild the trust or build it from scratch, build the trust and the safety for honesty to happen so that it does not basically re-traumatize the person or the couple. And this is part of my area of expertise as a trauma-informed coach And I'm trained in in somatic experiencing, which is a super powerful modality that's body-based, which is perfect for this area of coaching. Um, But it's creating that inner sense of safety 
from within where you, you can handle telling the truth, that you feel safe, and that you also know how to discriminate who you tell the truth to. And don't just go outside and yell it off of the rooftops or tell strangers on the street. Or just announce it to my entire podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Or that. (laughs) But it's, you know, it's being, it's, it's creating that context, creating a safe context with a partner and with people that matter in your life where you develop that trust and then you can be honest and then that becomes rewarding. And so it's precisely the process that I help couples create within the, the relationship itself that most people have no intentions of being dishonest, but that in a way it felt safer to be dishonest. And so we need to make it as safe, if not safer, to be honest, to name what it is that you want, and to do it also in a way that your partner can hear it. Uh, because I'm not an advocate of just tell the truth or, or be brutally honest. No, we need to create trust and safety to be honest. And it's not about telling other people what we think of them, uh, but it's about really being vulnerable about what we need and what we're experiencing. And that's what creates a, a completely different kind of relationship, which then opens the door to working on sex in your relationship. Because when it's not safe in the relationship, no sane partner of any gender is going to say, yeah, let's talk about this most vulnerable thing in our lives in this. It's just, it, it's going to be so unsafe that they will naturally resist, pull away, put blocks to doing this. So the more vulnerable you can be in approaching your partner to talk about what you want, which could be working on your sex life with a coach or addressing this, the more vulnerable you can be, the more you can reach their heart and the more receptive they can be in, in meeting meeting you and in um, being willing to do to go through this journey. So that safety piece is incredibly important. So when we're working on this uh, as individuals and as couples, what is a healthy expectation or goal even to set for your own sex life? Would it be that we all get to a place where that desire is happening regularly? Or I know with women, so many of the things in their lives, whether it's productivity or desire or what have you, it's on a different cycle than the man. I remember learning mm-hmm. about how men tend to be on a 24-hour cycle, and that's kind of what yes. a workday is based off of, whereas women are on more like 28-day cycles. Yep. And so learning to work with my female cycle, for example, even with work and knowing when was my creation mode versus when is my receptive or sit back and contemplate mode are are two different phases. I'm wondering if those phases play into our, do we have cycles like that for desire? We absolutely have cycles because really sexual desire in a relationship is a dynamic. It's not one person's or two individual people's Uh, desire. It's really, it's a system because your mood is affecting your partners, your availability is affecting your partners and vice versa and all these things happening. And of course, there's all these biological cycles that are happening parallel to this. But how I want to frame this is that 
And this is the three types of sex that I talk about. First one being biologically driven in the big kind of what we experience in the beginning of a relationship. It's all about friction. Can't wait to get your hands off or hands on each other. It's driven by just this, this sexual tension that wants to be released. Very biological. That has a very short shelf life. Just because the biology is designed such that once you have sex, once a couple of times the body says, okay, well, we've done the deed the, you know, a baby's coming, whether you want it or not. Um, and that kind of sexual desire naturally wanes. And the next stage is the validation stage of what, what I talked about earlier, um, the stage when you're in love and you, you want validation from each other. But that also has a very short shelf life, precisely because it's, it's very love-driven and emotion-driven and pleasing-driven. And What's missing in validation kind of sex is eroticism. And when we're just taking care of each other in sex, when it's like, okay, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, you'll have an orgasm, I'll have an orgasm. That's all beautiful and nice and comes from good intentions. But it lacks this kind of selfishness, it lacks eroticism, it lacks this passion. And so it's the third type of sex that is not biological or not just biological. It's not just driven by love and taking care of each other, but that it's driven by a curiosity about each other and an attention to connection. Where are we today? What do we need? Like what's, what's in the space between us? What is it that we need being both tired or both energized or one person tired and one energized. You just had a baby. Where are you right now? And what are your needs? And what's the connection that's happening between you? And this is an, an answer to your question about like, what's the ultimate goal? And the ultimate goal is to learn to develop sexual desire beyond the biological urges and beyond the or the, the, the needs for validation and for, for love, but to develop a kind of sexual desire that is, again, rooted in curiosity, rooted in this hunger for each other, learning how to develop that. And for most people, we don't even give ourselves permission to be hungry, like truly hungry for things that we want in life. We play it safe. Oh, I don't care what happens. Any, any, you know, any way it goes, it's fine. That's not hunger. We have to allow ourselves to be hungry for our partners and for each other. And when we can learn this type of approach to sex, which is what I call connection sex, then sex just naturally evolves and sexual desire naturally evolves and grows over time. And it grows with us. Wherever we go, it, it becomes something new and something exciting versus a static, uh, consistent, reliable thing, which is nice, but it lacks the passion and it lacks the connection that most people are craving in, in and out of sex. So that's the ultimate goal, to be driven by, and again, knowing how to do this, being driven by this desire for curiosity and exploration and, and hunger that's sustainable that is something that does not die just by virtue of its design 
this is something that I said, like I said, grows with you over time. For listeners that are listening to all this and they're like, I feel this. I know I can connect better. I know that more is possible for me. Where is a good place for them to start? What's an action item that maybe they can work on this week to start to get more in touch with their bodies or to voice uh, their needs or, or where where should they start? Yeah, one of the practices that I teach is what I call a pleasure pause. And it's really a seed that's going to germinate into something bigger that's going to create ripple effects everywhere else. And a pleasure pause is taking time out of the day to really just enjoy yourself. And this is not has nothing to do with being sexual, although by all means, that of course can be included. But I want to just really go to a more basic level. Um, And this is especially necessary for women who are incredibly busy, focused on producing results and getting things done and uh, showing up in the world, that taking just five minutes or, you know, please take 15 minutes for yourself to enjoy a cup of tea and really taste it or go outside and listen to the birds or turn your favorite music and dance to it and feel that pleasure in your body. Uh, And it's not about, for example, going for a run and feeling the adrenaline because you feel successful, but really doing something that fills you up with sensations, with a pleasurable experience in your body. Because that starts to create that permission to enjoy yourself. And that starts to give you the vocabulary of what you like and you need. Like, wow, I, I didn't realize that I really enjoy smelling roses. Wow, I would, or flowers. I would love to have flowers in the house that would make me so happy. It's all these different ways that we fill our cups. And when our cup is full, then you can explore all these other areas or that you might be prompted or motivated to to ask these deeper questions where where have I been dishonest about what I need and where do I need to be honest? Filling your cup is is an important element. And so the pleasure pause is a way to do that. So before you do any harder work around this topic, do something that's pleasurable for yourself. To take 5, 10, 15 minutes to really enjoy something. Even if it's like the shower that you take every morning, but just stand there and feel the water. Feel the water on your skin. Feel the soap on your on your body. Really feel it and see if you can enjoy it. That's key. Well, I know I personally have some things to work on. I have not pleasure paused at all this week. <laughs> And, you know, it's so easy to say like, well, I'm in a cycle of productivity right now, but I know that I feel depleted when there's any one areas of like the key areas of my life that are missing when I, and I know too, that I've got to give myself grace and know that there's a time for things. But what I'm hoping is to get to a place where nothing's ever neglected during any of the phases. I'm at least touching on it, even if it's even if I'm touching it a little bit different way, pun intended. (laughs) So (laughs) for listeners that are interested in learning more about you, and I know that you offer, uh, you have so many offerings to work with people, where's the best place for them to connect with you? Yeah, so my website, irenefair.com, is the 
main central place for all of this. And there you'll find a free video series that I offer that's called How to Want Sex Again. I talk at more depth about these three myths, or excuse me, four myths and um, other topics, um, uh, what's really important in terms of how to want to have sex again and how to rekindle your own sexual desire. So this free three video series is available on the website. There's also links to my online signature program called Feed Your Libido, where I take women through a self-learning journey to discover their body, to understand how it works, and to gain the vocabulary and the confidence to be able to talk to their partners, to shape the experience of sex to work for them. And lastly, of course, my website is a way to get in touch with me about coaching. So I work with single women and couples with sex and intimacy coaching. All the links to this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 225. Your challenge for this week is to work on that sexual mindset. Rather than jumping into a physical habit too quickly, we want to work on some of the beliefs around sex for you. So first, bring awareness to what your thoughts around sex are and what your thoughts are around your role in sex. Do you feel sexually broken? Do you identify with having a lower sex drive? Do you feel like you don't want sex? Think about it. Sex is supposed to be transcendent, orgasmic, pleasurable. And yet for some reason, a lot of us are like, meh, maybe later. Hand me some chocolate though and I gotta have that shit now. So bring some awareness to your beliefs around sex, or like I said, your role in sex. Where are you starting with your relationship to sex and where do you want to be? When ideas or thoughts come into your mind about sex or your desire, what are they? What do you wish they were? Can you start out by affirming that you are not broken, that everything is completely normal? Can you explore your own sexuality to find pleasure without pressure? These are all things that I've found helpful over the years, along with showing up for it, setting a schedule, knowing that from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, (laughs) that is my number one priority. What works for you, though? We're all different, especially in this regard. So... Let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right on this show notes page at mindlove.com slash 225. If you love Mindlove and want to support the show, you can join Mindlove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get ad-free episodes along with the entire backlog of exclusive episodes and some other goodies. And if you want a chance to have your review read live on the show, well, not really live, recorded, but you know what I mean. You can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 